a conspiracy theorist. I believe that Lee Harvey Oswald probably acted alone. I believe that Neil Armstrong actually did walk on the moon. I believe without needing to see a birth certificate that our president is in fact a citizen of the United States. I am not a conspiracy theorist. But I do believe that as we look over the centuries of the interpretation of Scripture, we find there a concerted effort to silence the voices of women and to obscure the important leadership role that women had in the early Christian church. It's pretty obvious that the ancient world of the Bible was patriarchal. The tribal world of the Hebrew Scriptures centered around fathers and patriarchs and kings with privilege passed down through the firstborn son and with women basically treated as property. Marriage in the Hebrew Scriptures was essentially a property transaction. The Greco-Roman world of the New Testament wasn't much better with its imperial, male-centered hierarchy. The point is that the world we find in the Bible was not a woman-friendly world. The women of Scripture lived their lives within a patriarchal culture with little official status and privilege in the dominant hierarchy of power. We see that in the second story that we read this morning, this story of the unnamed slave woman. The Apostle Paul has arrived in Philippi, and as he is crisscrossing the city, he encounters this young slave woman who is owned by two profiteering charlatans. The text says that she has a spirit or a demon that lets her see the future. In more modern terms, we might think of this as mental illness, or maybe her owners have drugged her. Her owners have her out on the streets, in the marketplace, she tells people their future, and her owners pocket the profit. So Paul's in the marketplace too, and every time that this woman sees the Apostle Paul, she shouts him down. She shouts at him saying, these men are slaves of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Every day, every time she sees Paul, she shouts him down. And this annoys Paul. And so he turns to her and says to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the text says that the Spirit leaves her. She is healed. And the text also says that after that, she's not much use to her owners. And that's the last we hear of her. In this story, this woman is about as far down in the power structure as one can be. She is a woman. She is a slave. She is possessed by a spirit. And her owners are exploiting her mental illness to make a profit for themselves. She is oppressed and possessed in just about every way imaginable. And the story itself is pretty unsatisfying. The story itself doesn't treat her with much respect. It doesn't even give her a name. Paul does cast out the spirit and he heals her, but the story says that he does this because he is annoyed at her shouting, not because he sees her humanity. The story doesn't tell us anything about what happens to her after that. It's as if she doesn't really matter to the story. What matters is that she is no longer profitable property for her owners. They take Paul to court, and he ends up in jail, and that's where the story goes. And who knows? Who knows what happens to this woman? She's not the point of the story. In fact, we don't get to hear her story. 
The story of how she was once afflicted, but now is healed. The story of how she was once owned, but now is set free. The story of what it meant to her to experience the healing power of the risen Christ. Her story is lost in the silence of the centuries. What we do hear and see in this story is an ancient world that actively denies the full dignity and the full humanity of women. But, even as we read these stories that clearly reflect the hard world of Scripture in which women live, in the book of Acts and in the whole of the New Testament, we also get glimpses of an alternative narrative, an alternative history, in which women are full and equal leaders in the early church. Even out of that patriarchal culture, we see evidence that in the days and months after resurrection, something else, something new was going on. And we see that in the first story we read this morning, the story of Lydia. As the Apostle Paul arrives in Philippi, he wanders outside the city gate down by the river, and he stumbles upon this community of women praying. Paul is looking for a place to pray, and he finds a place of prayer peopled entirely by women. And there he meets Lydia. Lydia is no slave. She is a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth is a luxury item, and she is a merchant who trades in it. There's no mention of a husband. Lydia is the head of a household and of a business. And she's a worshiper of God, a Gentile drawn to the Jewish tradition, a woman making up her own mind and free enough to act on it. Lydia listens to the gospel and decides and is baptized in her whole household with her. And then the text says that Lydia prevails upon Paul to come and stay at her house. Now, Lydia must be pretty impressive because if you've read any of Paul's letters you know that it's not so easy to prevail upon him. And later, after Paul is imprisoned for freeing the slave woman, and after he's freed from prison, he goes back to Lydia's house, where she has already started, in her home, the church at Philippi. In stories like this, we see the evidence, even out of a patriarchal world, of the important leadership that leadership role that women had in the Jesus movement. And it starts in the Gospels, Mary and Martha and the Samaritan woman and Mary Magdalene. As crucifixion draws near, the male disciples run for their lives, but the women persist and accompany Jesus all the way to the cross. As Dr. J. Alfred Smith of Allen Temple in Oakland says, the women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Women are the first to experience the resurrection, the first to tell the story. And then in the stories that flow out of resurrection, women experience the risen Christ. In the book of Acts and in the epistles, Lydia and other women emerge as important financial backers of the emerging church. Even more than that, from Paul's descriptions of their work and from his own expressions of gratitude in his letters, we see that they are full and equal partners in ministry. There are women disciples, Tabitha, and women deacons, Phoebe, 
And even one woman, Julia, who along with her husband is called an apostle. One who is sent into the world as an ambassador for the risen Christ. And perhaps most importantly, women founded or helped to found house churches. The building blocks of the early church in Philippi, in Corinth, in Ephesus, and probably in Rome. You see, it's not surprising that in the stories of Scripture we find a patriarchal world that silences and oppresses women. That's not a surprise. What is surprising is that out of that patriarchal context, these women leaders rise up off the page. Lydia and Tabitha and Prisca and Mary, their stories have not been silenced. In their stories, something is being let loose, set free. In resurrection, the risen Christ brings to life the voices of those long silenced. Women and men share the experience of the risen Christ. The movement that becomes Christianity is birthed and nurtured in house churches founded by women. Women serve as missionaries and disciples and deacons and apostles. The spirit that is let loose at Pentecost empowers both women and men to speak and to prophesy and to preach. And if we listen closely to these texts, we can hear their voices. Voices long silenced proclaiming the good news of God's love for us in the risen Christ. I want to tell you about something that has transformed the seminary community over the past three years. Three years ago, a group of women students got together and they decided that they wanted to put on a production of the play called The Vagina Monologues. Some of them had experienced the power of this particular play and its impact on their lives. And they wanted to share that in relationship to our shared life of faith. The Vagina Monologues is a collection of monologues put together by Eve Ensler out of interviews and conversations she had with women about women's lives and women's bodies, about relationships, about sexuality, and about violence against women. The monologues tell stories out of the lives and out of the bodies of women. They are incredibly empowering, in large part because they are stories that break open historic silence. So three years ago, this group of women students went to the seminary and let the administration know that they would be presenting the vagina monologues. As you might imagine, just from the name of the play, there was no small amount of angst. The students didn't exactly ask for permission, but they did ask for a space to produce the monologues. A couple of professors backed the project, and then the interim president's wife declared that she would be doing one of the monologues. And after conversation, the administration responded by saying that the student production could go forward on campus But they asked that the student group not use the seminary's name in connection with the production. We all make mistakes. (laughs) So on a night in March 2011 in the SFTS student lounge, these students presented the vagina monologues. As the production began, the women entered carrying candles, singing a song called No More Silence. No More Silence 
No more silence. We will shout it out. No more silence. And the stories that emerged in that evening transformed the room. We wept as we heard stories of violence against women. And we laughed as we heard words spoken out loud that one does not usually hear on a seminary campus. They were stories of love and hurt and joy and pain and discovery and freedom. The stories let loose something powerful and empowering. Hearing these stories made folks want to tell their stories. So, the second year, the students came back to the administration and asked if in the second year they could use the full name of the student group, including the name of the seminary. The San Francisco Theological Seminary Feminist Perspectives Committee and the administration said, well, of course, why not? (laughs) And this year, as they prepared for the third annual production, this group of students had another inspired idea. They said, what if we gathered together folks to write their own monologues, women and men? So the students organized writing workshops and invited folks to write about their experience of sexuality and the sacred, and people gathered, and people wrote, and people shared their stories. Over the past three years, this experience of the vagina monologues has transformed our community. These stories spoken out of silence have birthed more stories, and what has resulted is a conversation. As this community of learning prepares for and shares in ministry, we now find ourselves asking more and more, whose voices are we not hearing? What story do we and they have to tell? And what I have the privilege of seeing from my location in the institution are emerging leaders for the church who are bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are advocates and pastors for the full dignity and the full humanity of all people. This is an important part of the work of resurrection, this bringing to life voices long silenced. In resurrection, the risen Christ brings us from death to life, and in resurrection, the risen Christ brings to life voices long silenced. You see, the authorities put Jesus to death to silence him to silence the good and empowering news he was preaching of God's love for us stronger than any power that oppresses and keeps us down. They tried to silence him, and it didn't work. On the third day, Jesus was let loose from that tomb, and what follows in Scripture is this cascade of stories of how people experience the risen Christ. The women at the tomb, Mary, Peter, Thomas, Jesus' frightened friends gathered in a locked room, the community at Pentecost, Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, an Ethiopian eunuch, an unnamed slave woman, Lydia, and a community of women praying at the river. These stories call forth speech. They call us to speak. Where have we been silenced? How have we been silenced by power? How have we been silenced by others, maybe the world, but maybe even in our own 
family who's to, who has told us that we are not good enough or important enough to have something to say. And this is a hard one. How have we been silenced by our own internal critical voice? Don't say that. What will people think? How have we silenced others? These resurrection stories let something loose. They call forth speech. They invite us to speak and to listen for voices long silenced. So I keep coming back to the silence of this unnamed slave woman as her owners argue because her healing means they can no longer make money off of her. And I wonder how the world might be different if we had her story. Imagine what her story would be. But first we need to find a name for her because it's just not okay for her to be nameless. So I consulted yesterday with my friend and Greek teacher, Polly Coote, and we decided that it would be fitting to honor this woman with the name Eleutheria, which means freedom. There, Eleutheria stands in the marketplace just after Paul heals her in the name of the risen Christ. And for the first time in a long time, she has clarity. She can see clearly. She can hear clearly. She can think clearly. And there are the men who claim to own her, yelling at this diminutive man named Paul. They have forgotten all about her. She's no longer any use to them. In fact, no one in the crowd even notices her. They are watching the men argue. And Eleutheria looks around, and she walks away. One step, and then another. Head held high, she moves through that crowd, and the crowd parts as she walks away into freedom. She walks and she walks through the city streets, out the city gate, all the way down to the river, and there she comes upon this community of women praying by the river. They see her and they invite her to sit. They can tell she has had a rough time. So they bathe her in the river and they tend to some cuts and some bruises and they dress her in purple cloth. One of the women is named Lydia. And as she sits and brushes Eleutheria's hair, Eleutheria tells them her story about being held and owned as a slave years in a gray fog of captivity. And then of being healed and let loose in the name of someone named Christ she tells them her story, and these women tell her their story. They sit there together, praying and talking by the river. And as evening falls, Lydia prevails upon Eleutheria to stay with her while she gets her feet on the ground. Eleutheria starts to work with Lydia, making the purple cloth that Lydia sells in the market. And in the evening, she helps Lydia host a gathering of folks who gather and who follow this new movement called The Way. They gather and they pray and they sing 
and they tell stories about Jesus and about life, and they share a meal together. Eleutheria becomes an important leader, a deacon within that community. And one day, they get this letter from a friend named Paul. He's in prison, but he writes to his friends in Philippi, to the Philippians. And as is their custom at their evening meeting, they gather to read the letter. Lydia looks to Eleutheria and says, you know this, Paul. Why don't you read it to us? The room grows quiet. And Eleutheria rises up. And she unrolls the letter. And she speaks. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, grace to you and peace from God our Creator and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion in Jesus Christ. And she continues to read. And the community listens as Eleutheria speaks. These resurrection stories let something loose. They call forth speech. They invite us to speak and to listen for voices long silent.